Welcome to the ARC Business Exits Podcast, where we have amazing conversations tailored around buying and selling businesses. Our guests are owners and founders, mergers and acquisitions experts, and other relevant industry leaders. Additionally, many of our guests will be discussing the rugged yet rewarding path of an entrepreneur's journey. We dive deep to truly uncover the greatness and grit of our guests. I'm your host, Jared Osborne, founder of Arc Business Exit. We represent sellers or buyers during the sale of a company. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get into it. Hunter Durham, welcome to the show. How hey, are you doing? Jared, good to see you again. Yeah, you as well. We've had a few encounters in, in previous uh, walks of life. Nothing too extravagant, though, but glad to have you on the show and really looking forward to sharing your story. Um, those positives, negatives, hardships, and uh, the faith that you keep within you to maintain the journey. Yeah, no, looking forward to it. I uh, was excited when you asked me to do it. I've I did one of these and the audio was terrible, so I didn't share it with anybody. So this is, you know, this is round two. This is a redemption for uh, for me. Yeah. Yeah. Doing these podcasts, like, no joke, man. Like, I was just like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm running my business as an advisor on the side, helping people buy and sell businesses. You know, I'm just going to throw podcasts in there because it's just, you know, it's just marketing, like another marketing lever. Well, I'm like, no, it's like this production, editing, like, I mean, I'm glad I'm outsourced to editing because that is not my expertise. So it's a production. Yeah. Not like everything. I think it just takes a little while to, to get used to, but once it gets cranking, hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll bear some fruit for you. Yes. hundred percent. All right. For the audience and the listeners, just take 30 seconds, 45 seconds. Tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, start from your upbringing and kind of where you're at right now. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I grew up in Missouri, so I'm a, a Midwestern boy. Went through all of high school um, in Missouri and then moved down to Florida when I left high school. So I was escaping cold weather. Uh, that's where I met my wife down in West Palm Beach, Florida. We met just coming into college. So we got married when I was 20. She was 21. Went to a small little Christian school down there. So I was married after my sophomore year started out my career in working for a big firm. So was with Red Bull, you know, at, at, during college, then kind of did internships with Dell and Microsoft. And then first official post-graduation job was uh, with uh, Facebook. So we were in Austin for about three years before we officially moved out here to Puerto Rico. Um, and so during that time, we've had three children. We got a four, three and a two month old right now. So um, it's been a little bit crazy life, but yeah, we've been married for about eight years, got three children now and, uh, our love and life out here in, in Puerto Rico. And yeah, that's kind of a little bit about me. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. You seem to merge quite a few big events into a short span of your life because you're still a very young individual, which I know has probably helped your maturity, which we'll get into, you know, down the road. Um, let's talk about a little bit about high school slash college, like, did you know you wanted to own a business? Did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Uh, you obviously got out of college working for a nice, prestigious 
firm like Facebook. Talk to me, what what were your initial goals and then how, how did they shift? Yeah, that's a good question. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, I didn't know what that was going to look like. So, you know, I thought growing up in a small town, there's not a lot of entrepreneurs coming out of Springfield, Missouri. You know, there's not this pipeline. Uh, there's a couple of good ones, you know, that I've recently connected with. So I thought I needed experience first to be entrepreneur and I got married. So I had to have responsibilities on, on top of all of that. And so I tried to start like a small drop shipping business in college and, you know, just didn't have the resources and the capital. And, you know, I would say my original thought process was, you know, go to school, get experience, go get an MBA, you know, go back and get some more experience and then do the entrepreneurship thing from there. And so I always had a proclivity to start things. Um, and I think that's a, a, a trait of an entrepreneur is, is, you know, you're just kind of always thinking about, you know, ideas and getting things off the ground. And, you know, one of the, what it's a weird thing. One of the more like proud achievements is when I was in college, I started the marketing association on campus, like the American marketing association, got all the, you know, registration to be an official affiliated chapter, got the sponsors on board. And that exists, you know, eight years later, uh, which is pretty cool uh, to just kind of see the the legacy. And, you know, I've donated to it and kind of funded it over time. Um, but, you know, I did things like that to, you know, that were always something that I was like starting or always something that I was trying to to achieve during that time period. And so, yeah, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur at some point, own my own business at some point. I just didn't know what route that would, uh, would look like uh, when I was at that age. Yeah. American Marketing Association was my first and only organization that I joined in college. Uh, yeah. Looking back at it, I should have joined a lot more because we all know about networking is number one. <laughs> right? And, but yeah, that was the only one I had. But that's interesting that you, you started that. Yeah, um, no, it was awesome. I also went to New Orleans and stuff. It was a super fun time uh, during, uh, during college. So yeah, good. good. Um, so Facebook was the first job out of college. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of weird. It wasn't necessarily my first job. I had a internship with Microsoft my senior year, going into my senior year of college. Um, I was working on a partner program with their Latin American headquarters down in Fort Lauderdale. And they ended up hiring a consulting group to kind of roll out the program globally. And so I had already done a lot of the project you know, materials, building out the PowerPoints, working with partner onboarding. And so when that consulting firm came on um, to run the project globally at, at Microsoft, kind of out in Seattle, they actually hired me on board um, my senior year of college. So it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of weird. I was working 30 plus hours a week, you know, full time with a consulting firm, kind of managing this global partner program, working on SQL databases um, onboarding partners in Latin America and Europe and MEA. Um, and so that was actually my first real job, I would say, is I was working full time, you know, my senior year of college. Wife was a nurse at that point. And then that, you know, kind of transitioned into uh, my job at Facebook, uh, where I started about October of the, the following year, took three months off to travel with um, my wife and then kind of went back to Facebook in October following my uh, senior year graduation. Okay. And you're bi are you bilingual, I'm assuming? 
Uh, yeah, I would say I'm conversational in Spanish. Uh, okay. In that program, I was uh, I was pitching partners in in Spanish on you know upgrading their their SQL databases uh, okay. to the the newest version. Um, but I wouldn't. Uh, it's part of the reason we moved to Puerto Rico. But I'm conversational. I can hold hold it down. Right. Uh, in, is, in is that why you got the that position at Microsoft for being partly bilingual or something else? Uh, you know, I don't, not really. I don't think so. There, most of the other interns that were interning in Fort Lauderdale with me were not bilingual. Um, so I think it helped in my ability to actually, you know, a lot of times internships are just work that you don't actually do, do the work, but it actually allowed me to do the work and talk to the partners and, you know, be able to communicate with them in their, their native language. And I think that's what ultimately led to my role you know, with the the global program. Um, but it wasn't actually necessary. It was one of the first years of that, that office had, you know, in-person interns. And so I think it was just kind of a, a coincidence that I happened to, you know, land in Latin American um, headquarters at Microsoft. Yeah. So Facebook, I was what's called an account manager. So usually anybody that I was working with was spending more than $500 a day on Facebook at the time. Uh, and this was back in glory days, Facebook 2017, where you could put money in and get money out. And yeah. when Facebook I came ads, Facebook, right? yeah, Facebook ads. So, um, you know, that's across Facebook and Instagram. And when I came in, they put all of these freshmen in a, in a cross vertical book. Uh, so I had clients like Johnsonville sausages, Pacific life insurance, bunch of e-commerce companies, drug rehabilitation centers out in Seattle. And I thought it was awesome because I got to see, you know, 50 plus businesses across all different sectors. And during that time at Facebook, we had access to basically all information. So we were basically seeing top line revenue, any purchases that were happening on the website. You know, I would usually dive into margins with my partners to kind of understand their business models. And then we also could see all their advertising spend, you know, what it was taking to, to reach that revenue numbers. And I would say that's where, you know, I, I would say that experience got me, you know, fast forward the most comfortable with just like reviewing businesses is because, you know, oftentimes I was being asked to come in and, you know, understand these businesses quickly to then understand, you know, how much we can spend and, you know, what their margin profiles look like to be able to, you know, uh, represent profitable growth. And so went from that to then they pushed us fully into e-commerce vertical. And so then I had, you know, 50 plus uh, e-commerce partners in various industries from, you know, health tech to, uh, you know, travel memorabilia to um, watches, shoes, you know, anything that was kind of in the e-commerce realm um, fell into my book for a little while. And so, you know, I always tell people during that time period, 90% of my job was actually focusing on the business and 10% was talking about ads. You know, this was at a time where you could just put money in and get money out. So the, really the blocker for my clients spending more money was actually helping them solve their business problems, whether that was inventory, creative team, um, you know, just strategic planning, uh, new product launches. And so it was, it was really a consulting role more than anything, like a consulting role, like disguised as a sales role, but we didn't make commission because we couldn't actually touch the ads. We couldn't, you know, 
pull the levers for the clients. We couldn't do anything. We really just had to like be a good partner to them. And and hopefully that resulted in them spending more um, with us on the platform, which, you know, ultimately was the the goals that we were being, um, you know, gold against. And so, uh, yeah, I would say that's really where I just got to dive into, you know, dozens and dozens of business models um, and understanding all of their margin profiles to really kind of start to make sense of it all. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you got your reps in before you had to hop on the broker calls and the conversations with the owners, which we'll get into. So entrepreneurship through acquisition is obviously where we're headed in the the next stage of this conversation. When did you start looking for businesses? Was it your time at Facebook? Was it before that? And how did you allocate time to do that at, you know, at a job where probably pretty demanding on your time? considering they're probably paying you pretty well. Yeah. So I didn't actually start until probably like nine months later. So I, I, I got frustrated at Facebook, um, ended up leaving for one of my largest clients, um, who was based out of Canada. They were just a a Canadian drop shipper. Then, you know, about six months later, and this is like 2019 is what we're talking about. Um, six months later, you know, left the guys in Canada. Um, there's one guy who got along really well with me and, uh, he was like the main guy. And then there were two other brothers. And so we just kind of parted ways about six months later. And, you know, this was November of that year is really when I started kind of getting into the entrepreneurship through acquisition. Um, and really it kind of came out of me looking around, I was consulting for a couple of clients on the side that, you know, had been with me since Facebook and wanted me to just kind of manage their ads. So I, you know, I had a comfortable wage that I was making my wife was still working as a nurse. Um, we had already had our first son, you know, he's about nine months old. And so, you know, I'm like, if there's any time to be an entrepreneur, it's now, you know, I've like been pushed off the cliff thought about it when I left Facebook uh, you know, ended up joining somebody else and then kind of been pushed off the cliff again. And, you know, I'm like, okay, anytime to be an entrepreneur, it's going to be now, you know, I don't, I have like a ability to dedicate some time. And I I started looking around, I'm like, okay, who, what type of entrepreneur can I be? You know, I I had a wife, I had a family, you know, I had a son, I wasn't going to go grind it out for 12, 14 hours a day just because I couldn't, you know, on, on this new startup or, you know, whatever it may be. And so I, you know, I kind of started looking around. I'm like, who aggregates the most amount of wealth in the world? Like where do we, you know, where does money get aggregated? Where does capital get aggregated? And so, you know, it, it kind of pushed me down this rabbit hole of like Warren Buffett, private equity, you know, venture capital firms. And I'm like, Hmm, these guys seem to aggregate capital and wealth and, you know, it seems like they do it in a way that is, you know, you don't necessarily have to start something from zero, you know, to get there. Uh, and so that's where I really started kind of this, you know, idea of, of impact industry is I was, I've always been just because of faith and, you know, growing up, like money hasn't been a main driver, uh, and a lot of things that I do. And so it was like, my thesis was how do I make above average returns, pay people above average wages and still have money left over to go and impact the world. And so that was kind of like the initial idea and thought process behind the impact industry. Uh, you know, started putting together all of the, um, you know, kind of that thesis around it. 
And so continued on that path for about a month or two into January. And that's when I found the the search funder community, you know, joined searchfunder.com, started kind of reading through all of Stanford's, you know, documents on it, read, you know, Harvard's book on it. And, you know, during that time, one key part is like a banker reached out to me and from searchfunder.com. And, you know, I was like, here's what I'm doing, you know, wanted to eventually buy a business. He's like, okay, well, when you're ready, like, give me a call and, you know, we'll, we'll talk. And so this was back in, you know, uh, January, February, started talking to, you know, potential investors just in my network, you know, this is what I'm doing, letting them know I want to buy a business. And then all of a sudden like COVID hits. And so it kind of blows up the idea of like in-person meetings, in-person service models. And at the same time, e-commerce kind of blows up. Uh, and so that's initially what happened is my skills in e-commerce marketing and, and digital advertising specifically with Facebook just were, you know, I was in some groups and people like, I need to manage ads, I need to manage ads. And so that's how impact industry marketing ended up, you know, kind of growing is that it, it just kind of came out of a need and a necessity and, you know, started acquiring clients and, you know, focused on that for basically the next six, seven months. Um, impact industry time, is a marketing agency that you started, you didn't acquire, correct? Yeah, I didn't acquire it. No. So I was, you know, working with a couple of clients on the side and then it got to a point where I was just like, I'm leaving money on the table for my family. <laughs> you know, like there's just so much opportunity right now as things are kind of blowing up in e-commerce that I, you know, essentially started building the agency, um, impact industry marketing, um, during 2022 when this all started happening. Um, had my second child in May that year. So that was kind of other changes on top of it. And that is essentially what led me to have my own personal capital to kind of, you know, then go into entrepreneurship acquisition. And so kind of fast forward to October of that year, this deal kind of came across my desk. I had already signed up for quiet light brokerage back in January, you know, I'd been reviewing deals and just kind of like seeing if anything fit. And this deal came across and it was, um, you know, an online website. And at this point, you know, we had already decided to kind of explore Puerto Rico. And so service businesses were kind of thrown out the window a little bit uh, more than they had been in the past. That was like the original thesis. We were going to stay in Austin. Like you and your family and wanted to move to Puerto Rico. So you wanted something that could work from home or work remote. And then Wyatt Light, which I believe that, that was your first entrance to the marketplace businesses on sale which they do specialize in i believe digital marketing yeah and i mean back when i was like in january february we were still in austin had no plans to move to puerto rico you know and i had a list of 50 60 brokers that i had printed mail mailing labels for uh you know to send them a you know handwritten note to start to introduce myself uh but i never sent those uh because COVID blew up and I started building the business, you know, but I had already started to sign up for a bunch of online brokerages as well, just to, you know, start reviewing deals, you know, start, um, just kind of getting the reps in. And then by, you know, August of that year, my daughter wouldn't take a bottle from me. And so my wife quit nursing and kind of all these things just happened to where like, well, we don't really have to live in Austin anymore. We don't have anything that ties us to Austin. And we were like, all right, like, where can we live? Um, and so we moved down here, you know, for 
the surfing and the Spanish and just a different way of life, uh, really more than anything. Um, you know, and the taxes were more a cherry on top for us than, uh, you know, a reason that we, we wanted to move down here. Um, and so, yeah. And, and the agency was, you know, humming along. I mean, we were already close to 20, $30,000 a month, uh, and kind of recurring revenue, you know, by the time of August, September rolled around. So it was, it was a very quick growth from, you know, me just managing a couple of clients on the side to like, we were, I had already hired my first person that summer. And so like the agency sure. was growing pretty quickly and I was able to manage that from anywhere. And so, you know, that's kind of what landed us, uh, you know, looking for, I would say more alternative things than, than in-person service businesses. Yeah. That's interesting that you're, you're having success in the company that you started, which it's usually the other way around, right? So for me specifically getting into this world, I didn't have great success starting my own thing. Therefore I transitioned to like, all right, let me buy something that's already successful. But you were having success, but you still sought that journey out to, to acquire. Why not just grow what you're doing? Yeah. Why not put all your eggs in that basket, whether it's capital, labor, time? Why not? Why not stay there? You know, I think that if I am brutally honest, that was a mistake I made. Because, and I think if things would have happened in a different order and maybe a little like slower of a time frame, it would be different. But I am this, like my wife will tell you, I'm this zero to 100 person. You know, if, if, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it at a hundred. Uh, if I'm not going to do something, I'm going to do it at zero. There's like no middle ground. It's like drinking for me. Like I ended up giving drinking, not cause I had a problem, but it was like, I'm either going to be like hundred percent drinking or like zero percent drinking. You know, it's like, there's just not middle ground for me. Like I have an addictive that, personality. That was me. That was you know, me. I'm an, I'm a native American. So like there's addictive genes in me. And so, you know, there's some like, you know, uh, there's a lot of subtext there, but I think a mistake of mine was not pivoting from my vision, you know, because I started all of this back in November of thinking like, how do I do this? How do I, you know, make above average profits, you know, above average wages and still have money to go impact the world. And I thought I still needed to like execute on that vision. And so, you know, from that point on to where we are now, like I've just tried to execute on that vision and, and on the, the strategy. And so, you know, for me, I started having success and I didn't look at the success as like, okay, let's double down on the success. It actually turned into like, okay, I've been given success. Now I have my own capital. Now I don't have to even like raise that much money from investors. Now I have the ability to do it myself. You know, like it's all fallen into place. It's all fallen into the line of the vision. Like, and I am just like executing almost, right? It's like, it's like, it's almost like I viewed it as a, you know, this gave me the opportunity to now go execute the larger vision, you know, that I was really going after uh, during that time frame. where, you know, I think if looking back, that was the vision right? The marketing that, agency was the vision that I could have, you know, used to propel into that larger vision as well. I mean, you look at like Andrew Wilkinson, right? All yeah. of his stuff stems from an agency, you know, stems yeah. from the ability to like take this 
super cash positive business and do it over seven to 10 years, you know, when he started it back in 2008 to then eventually do it, uh, you know, to start acquiring businesses. And so, yeah, I think that was a mistake that I missed that we'll, I just, we'll get into the mistake slash yeah. what it turned here, but, but, but let's stay on the, uh, the exciting motivation path. All right. So the next yeah. one is, okay, what's the first company that you bought? Let's talk about that, the structure, how'd you find yeah. it? So yeah, as it came across my desk in October, online e-commerce company, it was a, in the furniture space, the structure was, you know, typical structure that you, you know, hear from ETA, 10% down, 10% seller note, 80% um, SBA financing on that deal. Um, and it was a little over a million dollars um, is what that first deal was. And that was the agency? Uh, no, it was a, so the agency is what we built. And then okay, we bought the e-commerce. This, this, this is the first uh, online e-commerce furniture store. Um, American made products, you know, really, uh, it was more of a like, it, it, you can call it a drop shipping model, but it was a little bit more labor intensive, like online sales, real person talking to a real customer, you know, closing the deal sort of uh, business. Okay. Seller, seller carried five, 10%. Um, do you have any investors in this? Kind of give us the size of the deal. If you're comfortable with numbers. Yeah. So size was about 1.2 um, 1. ish is uh, around there. So I, between me and my partner, um, original partner in, in this whole process, we put up about 70 um, of the 1.2, you know, so like we put up about 5% and then we brought in investors to put up the other 5% um, on the deal. Um, cash flow? Yeah. So it was about when we bought it, it was doing between three hundred and $400,000. Okay. Any red flags or things that you didn't address, maybe should have addressed, and maybe came back later? Yeah. I mean, I think the big In the due diligence like, process, I should say. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the big ones was just buying during a period of volatility. You know, there was the COVID bump, and we ended up continuing through it because I had all of this other e commerce data. You know, that was like the COVID bump was March, June, July, August, things started going down in e-commerce, like the plateau started hitting. But yeah. in this business, it was like, and it was home goods and they, you know, had a more extended bump, I would say. Home goods, it was like, you know, August, September, October, still good. You know, yeah. November, December, still going good. You know, even through the time that we closed it in late January or early February of uh, of 2021, things were still kind of humming along. And so we didn't think that the, you know, COVID bump was, we, we just didn't think it was a COVID bump. We thought it was enduring um, more than the other e-commerce business and data that I had access to. And I'm talking about like, I had millions of dollars of other revenue data in e-commerce that I was, you know, looking at as part of the agency, um, process. Um, and then the other one I think is really just the, it was a husband and wife duo. We knew there was not a lot of technology. Um, but I think we overestimated how much time both of them were putting into the business on a, on a consistent basis and how much time and skills, you know, 
the wife had particularly on kind of closing deals and was able to, you know, navigate the sales process just um, from that factor. And so, you know, I would say those are two big ones. I would say the last one is probably just performance of, you know, the conversion rate on the website was elevated. And I think that was probably a better indicator of the COVID bump. Um, You know, traffic from 2019 to 2020 was relatively stable up a little bit, but the conversion rate was significantly higher. You know, people weren't able to go in stores. You know, there was kind of like compounded effects of COVID with furniture because so much is bought in stores. So not only is like people staying home, but now they can't even go buy furniture in stores. So that kind of compounded the growth, I think, of the shop more than a traditional e-commerce website was experienced during that time. Gotcha. So um, owners, this is a big one, right? Because you see this a lot of business, right? Where the owners, whether it's their wife, husband, they're pretty he- heavily involved in sales, right? And that yep. relationship transition is very key. I don't care if it's e-commerce or landscaping, right? Um, so that that makes sense. And then the other one, you pretty much clear this up. You paid COVID bump multiples. You didn't do any sort of like weighted average on EBIT or anything like that. Just to kind of get a normalized cash flow for paying COVID. Yeah. We didn't do any sort of weighted um, weighted average or normalized cash flows. I will add on top of this that we were in a very competitive process for this business. So like it went from which good or bad thing, probably not a good thing as a first time buyer to be in a very competitive process for buying this business. I'm talking yeah. like they had, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think they had like 15 offers submitted and then they whittled it down to like nine and then they, you know, had a best and final, you know, period where you had to come in with a second offer and then it got whittled down to three and, you know, we won out, um, you know, I think for a couple of reasons. So I don't know that we were going to, I, I, you know, you I think get away paying with paying. Little, yeah, yeah, you know, we were yeah. paying a little, we were paying about like three yeah. and a half times current earnings. Uh, with the seller note in there, you know, so it wasn't like ridiculous multiples, right? It was just, it was kind of like normalized multiples and it was a very competitive process, which, you know, is probably not great for uh, a first-time business buyer. To be yeah. Completely honest. I mean, you probably should just drop out as a first-time business buyer if you're in a competitive process because it just is like, I like that. you I know, like- the, the whole, the whole process is in any of these, it's just emotions. And so, you either like you either find things that add emotions or decrease emotions, and a competitive process just like increases emotions significantly, yeah. and that's never a good thing. Uh, I think for first time buyers to to navigate. And I mean, and we we got to look at the time frame, right? Coming out of COVID, everybody's buying things online. You got all these deal aggregators in the e-commerce space. You're probably competing, you know, against them. You have tons of money. Retail, you know, physical retail sales just decline. Online retail as a percentage of all retail go from what twelve percent to almost twenty percent. So, I mean, yeah. everything's driving these bidders through the deeper the thing business. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So okay, so you you ha- you the business closes. Take us through the next few months. Few mo- the first few months, based on our previous conversations, they're going fine. Everything's smooth. Things are being maintained. You and your partner are doing well. How does that yeah. evolve? Yeah. So we, 
there's some SBA programs that we kind of delayed the closing a little bit for. So we ended up closing, I think, end of January. So it's about a, I mean, we ran about a 90 day process. We could have closed a little bit earlier, but SBA was like coming out with some new initiatives. I wish really would have closed earlier. It would have been better for, um, better for both parties. But, you know, first month sales, like we just get slammed. I mean, we just are having, 30 plus phone calls a day. It's hard to staff. We're having things on weekends. Like things are going really well. That happens for about the first couple of months. Um, but right about when we bought it, the Texas freeze comes. Uh, and there is only two chemical uh, suppliers for foam that get no, shut really. down for like a good week. And that basically destroys the whole entire supply chain of the furniture industry. Because I mean, this is like worldwide we're talking about. And like, those phone providers a, manufacture it in data tech. So it's like gas, right? So like the whole chemical plant that is used to then provide chemical into foam shuts down. So it just creates this huge backlog. Um, okay. So, you know, when we were looking at the business, it was 14 to 15 weeks lead times for a custom piece of furniture that's shipping all in delivered by month four we were looking at 28 to 32 week lead times before delivery so i mean we're talking about like eight to nine months in some certain scenarios to get a piece of furniture delivered and we weren't the only ones dealing with this um you know some managed better some had inventory on the floor you know so you know, anytime you, you have that kind of constrained, you know, supply, it's going to just hurt our demand a, a little bit in certain areas. You know, we probably should have raised some prices. We probably should have done a couple of things, but they could also find quicker lead times of cheaper products, you know, that are slowly being shipped from China. But I mean, everybody was dealing this from Wayfair to anybody. Um, and so, you know, that was the first big hit. I would say, um, that really affected the way that we, you know, we're looking at the business and, and I, I think the viability of the business, uh, as well. Okay. So, you know, and, and that chemical, uh, was there options to divert to another, or I guess, I mean, chemical talk about the competition within that space. They have a monopoly in this particular chemical. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of two suppliers. Like, I mean, uh, when I say like affects, it, it affected the whole entire industry, um, okay. you know, and, and like the supply chain of the furniture industry in general is very fragmented, you know? So usually it's like, you know, you got the chemical supplier, then that goes to a foam plant supplier. And then, you know, the foam plant supplier sells that foam to a cushion developer and then the cushion developer sells those cushions to the actual manufacturers that's building the frames and then that's usually the you know one that has the brand name on here so you know the delays kind of just like add up significantly one of our suppliers was able to kind of get back to decent times because they did their own cushions you know so they kind of vertically integrated a little bit more and that allowed them to you know have a little bit more competitive lead times but since they had more competitive lead times, their demand also went up. And so then it just kind of continued to, you know, snowball the entire process. At the same time, we're looking at like 40% increase in prices from our suppliers at this point as well. And yeah. when it's like a small, 
you know, necessity product, that's not very much, but when you're already talking about a $4,000 couch and you're looking at going up another 40% in, you know, prices, it's a pretty significant, you know, uh, price increase. And so, you know, oftentimes we would get hit with tariffs or additional charges, um, on top of that. And then on top of all of that, there's this whole entire supply chains out of whack. And so gas prices are up, fuel prices are up, shipping prices are up. So that added, you know, another significant increase. Um, and so really our gross margins started to really erode, um, pretty quickly after, uh, after we bought the business, just due to the supply chain, uh, kind of blowing up in our faces and, and, you know, specifically in, in furniture. Okay. So this is kind of middle 2021 and supply chain demand's still there, but yep. you're not able to pass these costs on to these increased costs on the, which I know there, but I know for a while <laughs> and just in general in America, cost inflated expenses and costs, businesses were passing on to the customer. So you maybe yep. you were doing that for a little bit and then it hit a certain threshold like yeah right, yeah so we had some price increases we um we tried to you know stomach some and you know like i said shipping was another factor uh it's just expensive to ship furniture um and so you know that kind of brings us to like acquisition number two we started shipping this furniture you know and this is probably four or five months after we acquired the the online furniture store and you know, we kind of going back to the vision is we started realizing that our customer experience really hinged on the shipping provider because we're talking about expensive white glove furniture delivery. And that is the moment that the customer has an experience with you is when they receive their furniture. And so, you know, we so just call the vision to like, let's, let's control another piece of the chain before. It gets- yeah. You know, that, that was kind of, you know, cause we were getting a, let's say damaged happen and our customer was calling us and being like, you know, are my furniture is damaged? And then we would call the shipping provider and they'd be like, okay, well, we'll try to repair it. Cause I mean, you don't just kind of send them a new couch. You usually go through like this repair process. So then a piece of furniture gets repaired and then it goes back to the customer and then the customer's like, okay, uh, I don't accept this. And so then it goes back to the shipper. And then at that point, you're like, okay, well, what do we do? Do we refund the money? Uh, we've already paid the suppliers. Suppliers, you know, are kind of, especially during this time period, it's like they don't want to honor, you know, a lot of the charges. And so it just kind of got to this, like, so many things were difficult to control in that whole customer experience that we we kind of looked at as like, well, if we're ever going to be the best, you know, online furniture store, uh, we need to own our entire customer experience process. And, you know, for, for furniture, that was when it arrived to the door. And so, you know, I called to kind of complain one day, I think to the the owner of our shipping provider. And he was like, I'm just tired. And I was like, tired of life. Like, what does that mean? He's like, I've just been doing this for, you know, so long. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just tired of doing this. And he had, you know, the supply chain and kind of like ruined his business, not ruined his business, but actually another provider went out of business. So he had like taken over both the West coast and the East coast. So he was running, you know, a much larger operation. And so I was like, you know, at this point I'm 
still in acquisition mode, still in like vision mode, still in, you know, all of this, you know, things are just happening so quickly. Agencies continuing to grow and, um, instead of slowing down, I was like, well, like, are you interested in selling? <laughs> and he's like, I think I am. And so we flew, you know, up there to see him the next week in North Carolina and, uh, you know, basically pencil out a deal on paper with him right there in his office. And then, you know, flew back home and waited for him to file his tax returns. And that's what, you know, ultimately led to, you know, deal number two was starting okay. with him. That's um, awesome. and so that's only six months after, right? The, the first yes. deal. Yeah. Did you take another, so we'll have to talk about structure, SBA, did you find it? Yeah. So what's funny is I was under, we were under LOI. Um, we got under LOI in I think September, I was waiting for him to file his taxes. I knew that was a big part of the SBA financing. And about the end of September, he, he basically emails my operations manager and it was like effective immediately. We're dropping, I think 14 States or something. So he covered basically the whole West coast as well, as I mentioned. And so he was covering, you know, he was dropping, Washington, Colorado, you know, a lot of these like Western states that he was covering. And so, you know, it kind of material changed the shape of his business. And so I called him and it was kind of, you know, uh, it, I was kind of like, Hey, like what's going on? And he's like, well, we've signed a really big customer. And in order to service that customer, we need to increase our service times. And so he was, you know, shaving off this part of part of the business to then basically, um, cover more of the east coast more efficiently and i was like well we're furniture usa how are we going to be furniture usa if we only cover you know 20 states and um he had mentioned during our original meeting that he owned the building of a competitor at town and so, (laughs) so things are really close in north carolina yeah and i um i said so you do think that guy's interested and in, in selling his business. And he, he said, I think he is. And so I call this guy, he calls me back, you know, the other owner calls me back 15 minutes later. He's like, he's interested. So I call him and he says, the first thing he says is, I wish you would have called me a month ago. And I was like, ah, dang it. You know, kind of disappointed. Um, you know, he, he said, I have a broker letter on my desk to go shop the business. And I have an all cash offer that the guy flew in that morning to close. Um, all I have to do is sign it and, and you know, this is like a $50 million trucking company out of California that had, you know, basically given him an all cash offer. That's right. And I said, here's who I am. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's the vision of impact industry. You know, I'll already have the story lined up, right. You know, from the last acquisition and, and everything that we were doing. And he said, if you can move quickly, I will give you an opportunity because this other company was just kind of like buy his assets, you know, fire most of his employees, assume all of the freight, you know, and he wanted some sort of legacy really for his business. You know, he wanted to kind of retain some of that continuity. And I said, okay, send me the numbers today. I got him an offer, you know, by the following day. And then I, he had told the other guys to go jump in a lake by the following day, that Saturday. And so this deal went from like a, $650,000 deal to a basically $1.8 million deal with another $750,000 in real estate. Um, so, you know, we're talking about like 2.5, 2.6 all in, um, you know, I think across everything somewhere around, um, those numbers. 
And so once that started, I went back to my bank. Things were still looking good at the e-commerce website. Went back to the uh, same bank, like, right? Went back to the same bank. Um, things were still looking good at the e-commerce website. And yeah, then we started trucking towards the next deal. And so that deal, I structured 10% down, 90% equity um, because we were buying it you know, close to like a two and a half times multiple, I would say all in excluding the real estate on, on that side of it. And so and this is know, all it, less than work. Cause one thing I want to impact on her is get this question a lot. Everybody wants to do a roll up, right? So you use an SBA product, buy your first business. Some banks are, all banks are different. A lot of banks will tell you, don't come back and buy, try to buy another business within a year, you know, yeah. or even a year and a half. Did they bring this up at all? Your 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 SBA lender? They didn't bring it up. The guy that I had originally met, who was the original one from Search Funder, you know, two years prior, I think had pretty good standing at the bank. You know, which is another thing. Like whoever's the relationship very important. guys, very important. very important. Like if they do deals, they do deals. You know, and the bank trusts them to like get deals across the finish line. Um. I tell I tell people this all the time. Like, it's not what bank you're at; it's the person you get at the bank. Does the yep. underwriting team trust him or her? Yeah. Right? And so he. So what's funny though is he he actually ends up leaving in the middle of the process. <laughs> so you know we go under contract with both businesses in like late October. I, I guess it would be like the time. Your plan is to take out both with one with one uh, SBA note. Yep. The plan is to take out both with one SBA note. And I mean, we had to go back and forth with the bank a couple of times on structure. Do we structure them as two separate deals? Do we structure them as one? Um, so, you know, we were going back and forth, you know, throughout the whole entire process and ended up landing on all one structure, all one realist, you know, inclusive of real estate, um, all under the SBA 7A program. Which I'm assuming they gave you some sort of amortization out. Oh, sorry about yeah, that. Yep. So it was a, a blended amortization of about 14 and a half years based on how much the real estate was, um, including of the um, inclusive of the total purchase price. So if we, you know, if it was more than 50%, you get a 25 year amortization, even on the 7A program. Um, you know, but we were sitting, I think, like 25% of okay. total purchase price was real estate. So it got blended over the 14. Um, and a half. I wish I would have separated out the real estate into a separate loan um, because uh, this was 2021 um, before okay. interest rates started cranking. Um, uh, and so it looked good. Uh, you know, six and a half percent was basically what the interest rate was going to be on both the business and the real estate, you know, 14 and a half years. Um, but we can, yeah, we can revisit that uh, on, on the side of it. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, so I ended up structuring at ten percent, just ten percent down, ninety percent financing. Um, ended up having to collateralize the agency, which really wasn't a huge deal um, for me specifically. Um, and we didn't end up taking the seller note on this. And I think there's I mean, a really at things. that point, collateral is in goodwill, right? The I mean, agency doesn't have a lot of assets. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. Collateralizing cash flow essentially um, yeah. to the bank on on the agency. Um and we didn't end up taking a seller note on this one. And I don't think I would take a seller note going back, um, to be completely honest. It 
you know, I think as we mentioned in the first one, it's like, it's a game of emotions. And so, you know, first I already had a seller note and there's having loans with the bank is a less emotional process than having loans with an individual. Cause you know, there was a bunch of negotiation on my first seller note. Is it PG? Does it not PG? I know, yeah. you know, Eric has talked about that and all these things, um, you know, and then you're going into this like second transaction where it's like two individual sellers, there's no broker involved. So there's no like emotional guide, uh, in all of this process. And then you gotta, you know, it, it, you know, adding a seller note at that point would have added a bunch of emotions that, you know, one of the sellers I know wouldn't have necessarily understood, I think in that situation. And so we were getting them a fair price. Uh, the cash flow was there to support it. And there just wasn't a need to add that extra layer of emotion, you know, on top of all of this, I would say, uh, you know, to, to add that seller note. And so, um, so yeah, so that was deal number two and that one took until February to close of the following two, two year. Two and three. Just combined. Yeah, two, yeah, two and uh, three, two um, and three, um, to combine. Okay. So you got three businesses now. Um, this is what, towards the end of 2021? Yep. Towards uh, the, uh, it officially closed like February 9th of 2022. You have a digital marketing agency that you have some employees probably running. You have your, your first e-com furniture store. And now you just close on two more businesses, which are both in the furniture distribution logistics space. Yep. And they close on the same day. Now, okay. Let's talk about that week after or month, the month after. And now you have two companies. You've got a lot of employees you're managing. Until you talk about emotion just now, right? Yeah. Tell me about the process of the next couple of months. What's going on? Yeah. So actually, uh, the emotion started a lot way before the closing. So we wanted to close on 1231. Bank comes back a couple of days before 1231 says this isn't closing. Um and so I had already planned to fly based on the closing 1231, fly up to North Carolina and, you know, start to kind of merge these two businesses. Um, so it doesn't close. We get like notification that it should close first week of January. So I fly up there. Um, you know, at this point we have two kids, wife is in Missouri at this point and I've, I'm flying to North Carolina. We, the strange thing is, is we actually ended up closing the business legally and according to all the documents on January 10th, okay. I didn't get them their money until February 9th okay. because we had a huge inference issue that blew up, um, that basically derailed the deal. Cause we were basically dealing with, you know, it's basically a trucking company. And so, um, we were able to get insurance on one of the businesses pushed over. But the second insurance company, we basically didn't, we weren't able to get insurance for about a month. We had to go through underwriting all over again. And we tried to, you know, avoid that doing a stock transaction, but with insurance, it's like any sort of material change also allows them to change the policy um, or, you know, deny the policy. It didn't matter if you, even if you did a stock. Yeah. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, like. And I think that's something that like most people are like, oh, if you assume the liabilities, you assume all the contracts, you assume everything and then a stock purchase. Well, it's like, no, there's, there's a lot of hurdles to get through to closing the transaction, even in a stock purchase where, you know, you think things are going to 
carry sure. forward and they just didn't. And so, um, you know, so I planned on being there, you know, early January to start merging, but really I just sat there for about a month, like working on this insurance issue because I technically owned these businesses and the owners and I were like coordinating on like running them together, uh, with me making some decisions, but I didn't get them their money until February 9th. I'm like, babe, I just can't come home until I get them their money. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was a stressful period. So we finally got it closed like February 9th. The wife and kids joined me for like another two weeks. Um, and it was honestly, I don't even really remember the the days after it closed. It was like, you know, it closes and then we start kind of transitioning things. Um, and then, you know, I had hired somebody who had been in the industry for 30 years to kind of help manage the, the business. And so I, you know, I think he did a pretty good job of merging two freight companies together and getting it all in together in one warehouse, you know, we survived and yeah, it was a, yeah, it's all a blur, honestly, that, right. that time and, period. And were those of, businesses humming for at least for a few months, cash flow and performance perspective? Yeah. So, I mean, when we closed, it was kind of like the peak of the, like, so all of this demand gets backlogged in the furniture space, then it all gets released, you know? So as the shipping company, that's when we start kind of like really humming. Um, Dude, so, okay. I mean, they were all, they were, you know, on top of the biggest client was still continuing to grow. Um, and so, yeah, we were definitely moving a large amount of volume, you know, immediately after we closed those businesses, um, to I can't remember, did you have your partner, was your partner part of the, the other two deals as well? No, he was not part of the other two deals. Okay. Um, okay. So personally though, you're sitting on, you know, assuming things are being maintained, pretty healthy cash. Like if I'm, if I'm, if I'm doing the math, right, we're close to the million in cash flow, things are humming. And so being that was the one oversight I think in this deal is right. the, the new largest client that I told you about was a, like, a, let's think of it more as like a corporate client. So it was mm-hmm. the first time that really either of these business had more terms. So we had net 30 terms that client, you know, as you kind of read through the, the, the Twitter posts I had that client basically increased our working capital probably by four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars of just what we didn't expect to have in working Did capital because they explain were explain net thirty to uh, to our audience. Yeah. So I mean when usually when we were delivering furniture, it was either net fifteen and we were working with retailers, um, like small retailers, or we were collecting cash immediately um from the customer when we delivered the furniture. So when we started working with this much larger company who was doing, you know, close to a couple hundred million dollars a year, we extended them net 30 terms, um, which then kind of wrecked our cash flow cycle for, for the furniture business specifically. You're pretty much running all the costs, right? You're not getting paid by them, your client for at least 30 days, probably sometimes more. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And I mean, it's a, it's a pretty long conversion cycle as well, just because like we're picking up the furniture, we're bringing it into our warehouse and then we are, you know, essentially then delivering it maybe 10 to 15 days later. So like the moment we start taking on expenses is a pretty long period from the time that we actually, you know, deliver the furniture. And then that's when we get to build that customer, you know, as the services has been rendered. So 
Uh, so that changed pretty significantly. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's very important. So, talking about working capital, cash flow, and I'm assuming by the issue that you're describing here that you did not receive a line of credit from the bank or some so sort we, of work. <laughs> so or we it did. wasn't. Big yeah, we did. It wasn't big enough. And they also underwrote like uh, $150,000 short when we like were closing the transaction. So we had like, we had written in our, you know, legal expenses, all of the deal expenses into the underwriting on our end. And they come back with a note and they're like $150,000 short of what we needed. And they're like, okay, well, we'll just add that to a line of credit. So we essentially increased our line of credit to about $250,000 on a working capital like line of credit. But we basically just had to siphon that straight back out to all of our legal expenses uh, on, right. on top of that. Um, that's not something I recommend you do either. I would yep. probably go back through the underwriting process just to get it attached to the, you know, the 7A loan. loan. Yeah. Uh, that's good stuff. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, that's creative because I think what you just said there is what a lot of people fear is, oh my God, I got to pay attorney fees. I got to pay the U of E fees, right? But if the debt service makes sense and the cash flow is there, the bank is willing to put some of these fees into, in many cases, into the loan itself for all the debt. Yeah, usually they are. And, and usually the line of capital through the SBA is relatively easy. We ended up increasing in another $250,000 the following year, and it was a, a pretty easy process to get another increase of that. So, you know, through that, the express $500,000, I think you get up to like an express $500,000 is what the limit is on, uh, on that product. But it's relatively easy to secure. It's pretty expensive, but it's usually only interest only. So if you can grow out of it pretty quickly, it's uh, it's a decent product to then kind of refinance and do a traditional, you know, rolling line of credit from the the bank. Gotcha. Okay, let's get into the juicy stuff. Um, so the <laughs> an hour later, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> what? Okay, so thanks for staying with me, Hunter. Here, I know we've kind of gone a little bit, but do I have yeah, some more worries. of your time? Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's preface this next next phase of the conversation by the tweet you wrote on September 5th, 2023, which is only a few days ago. Yeah. You got 1.2 million views, you had 187 reposts, 85 quotes, 2,400 likes, and 1,200 bookmarks. And to shorten the, shorten the, the spiel for everybody, this post is about you talking about your family and, and the things that motivated you and then, you know, a little bit about how you bought these businesses and then where things kind of started going south and wrong for you. Yeah. And so essentially a timeline of the last like four years, <laughs> I'm literally the last four years and you got like just the crazy, I, mean, I think you got like a third of your followers do all in one week. So yeah, it's like two, yeah, 2000, 2000 people are now, now joining the, the hunter story, uh, right. good or bad. So, <laughs> so you're being transparent on what happened. So in, in this main, the main part of this post was like when things really started going south and oh, you yeah. had to be transparent on, you know, things can go wrong in life and business and, and specifically here, entrepreneur, entrepreneurship through acquisition. So talk yep. to us a little about like when when did 
things start getting very, very scary for you in terms of, of covering the debt on the note in your business. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think all year, you know, things have been in a difficult situation for, for various reasons. You know, the one, the one kind of safety blanket was always the agency, right? Like the agency did $750,000 last year. It was able to basically cover expenses wherever we needed to cover expenses, provide working capital wherever we needed to cover, you know, working capital. And, you know, that was always the safety net of these other businesses, you know, like essentially it could cover all of the loan payments, um, and still pay me what it needed to, if I really needed that to happen. And so the agency kind of started to unravel first and I, I could kind of see it coming. I had left most of my responsibilities at the agency um, and the e-commerce market was changing. The overall e-commerce market was down. You know, creative becomes a much more important role in digital media and digital marketing. And so most agencies pivoted to a more, I would say, hybrid creative model uh, where they were taking on a lot of the creative in-house. Um, and we had done that to an extent, but we never invested what we probably should have to kind of build out that those strengths. And so, um, you know, we had going into or the end of last year going into this year really stable large public client that you know we were working on that still continued to kind of show a trajectory of growth um with the agency and then they they ended up going with one of the big fours and so you know when that started to deteriorate you know that was kind of my first like concern um and then i would say in june is really emotionally when i went through a lot of this is because you know our our customer that ended up you know basically ceasing operations and just declared bankruptcy you know chapter 11 last week you know they almost did it in june um and so you know that was where i i am this is the customer for what business for the shipping business so this for the for, that, yeah, that main where we were yeah, the main customer. Um, and so, you know, my wife is nine months pregnant in June. Uh, we're living in Florida to have the baby, you know, during the summer. And they stopped paying us, you know. So there was this period where they were paying us a little. We were trying to keep things on the road for them because if it's not like other businesses where if we stop servicing them, we can still, uh, provide the best service for our other customers. You know, we're a freight business, so it's all based on density. So if we lose a large amount of density with our largest customer, yeah. basically our trucks are no longer as full, which means our profit starts to go down, which means everything, you know, gross margin starts to go down. So everything starts to just kind of deteriorate if we lose all of our density. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's one of those, it was a really difficult situation because like if we cut them off, we were essentially saying we were going to have to downsize really rapidly, really quickly. Um, and so I spent, you know, almost two full weeks in June away from the family as we were about to have a baby, trying to negotiate, trying to really help them, um, you know, solve a lot of their problems to ultimately save our business as well. And so, um, if I had to go back, I would have walked away. I should have walked away. 
there was a moment where we could walk away walk from away. that. From that. Yeah. There was a moment in June where we could have walked away. All of our accounts would have been paid. Receivables would have been paid. We could have decreased our debt load with the bank, but we would also have to like rapidly downsize almost immediately in order to like keep things and, and things on the road. And I wish I would have done that. I wish I, you know, that would have been the surviving moment. Um, but instead we decided to keep them on. We resumed operations. We resumed, you know, normal. And we're talking about like $3 million a year, you know, like this is not yeah. like a, you know, this is a $3 million decision that, uh, you know, we're making, uh, to right. continue business with them or not. Um, yeah. and there was a point where I decided to walk away and then it kind of like, we're negotiating through the weekend We're you know, late, I was on the legal team with like 1, 8, 2 AM in the morning at one time, you know, like it was just a very, very emotional month. And, you know, I kind of resigned to walking away at that point and things got back going. Things looked normal. Things were progressing along to the point that, you know, we were in talks to kind of merge with another company. And then, you know, they announced that they were ceasing operations. Um, and, you know, that was the nail in the coffin because, you know, not only the agency died, you know, over the summer, the e-commerce was already struggling. And, you know, this was kind of like the last cash flowing asset that kind of, you know, could keep things going. And uh, there just wasn't a way to, you know, come out of it. And so I'm assuming one of your first calls is, to the bank, um, we're going to struggle to cover debt this next upcoming month or whatever, next few months. What was that conversation like? And talk about how the bank is working with you, did work with you, or tried to work with you. Yeah, so I've had a really good relationship with my bank, CIBC, um, the whole entire time. And, you know, a lot of people try to shy away from that, but the bank's like, probably the last people you want to shy away from in, in these difficult situations. They, um, you know, they don't want to lose their money. They also don't want to take over your business because they don't want to run your business. And so, you know, really maintaining a good relationship with the bank is probably, uh, you know, priority number one during any of these situations, because they're going to be the ones that ultimately can either help you or hurt you. And even, especially if you have an SBA loan, um, there's like, if things start to go south, one of the main things that you can do is submit an offer and compromise. So if things start to go south with your SBA loan, you realize you're not going to be able to make the payments, you still have a big note, you can submit an offer basically in conjunction with your bank um, to the US government that says, I'm no longer able to pay this. This is the deal we're offering you. And the bank literally has to check a box that says, was the debtor willing to work with the bank to, you know, work conjunctually with the bank to, uh, sell all the assets or, um, or liquidate things for them. And th the bank has to check that box. So if you start avoiding the bank and you start like, you know, just basically saying, you yeah. know, I'm not going to do not any gonna of check. this, like they're not checking that box. Um, and so it's really, really important that they check that box for you if you get to that situation because it can get you out of a significant portion of your SBA debt if you need to in that situation. Um, we're not going to file one of those because it's not really probably worth it for us anymore to do it just because everything's kind of collapsed. Um, yeah. you know, and essentially it's like you committing to a repayment plan you know, over the next three years. 
Um, but, but what would what would happen if they did? Like, let's say you submitted an offer for half of what your business was, half of the loan notes together. Yeah, what would they do? I mean, would they just kind of refinance uh, in a yeah. way and restructure the loan, and then you're paying you have a new debt payment of a million versus a three million? Yep. In a way, it's it's a it's a restructuring. Um, you have to go through the liquidation process. You have to go through basically, you know, selling the business and everything. And so, really, what they're looking at is like, does this person have other means to cover this debt? You know, when submitting this offer, um, yeah. and so, you know, it can't be any more than three years. And usually, you know, the best scenario is like a lump sum up front, and then like something paid out over three years, or you know, possibly structured, you know, over those three years you know, just monthly payments, but it essentially restructures your debt. And I've heard it can be as low as 30% of like what you own okay. or what you owe on the loan amount. So if okay. you owe 1 million and you offer them $300,000 with $30,000 up front and, you know, $270,000 paid over the next three years, probably a decent offer um, for the SBA to accept that payment. And they essentially write this thing that is essentially releases you from the debt says you have you know uh met your obligations to the sba to do that i don't really know if that disallows you from getting sba loans again um but that's essentially the you know what would happen in an offer and compromise situation okay so where are you at now with everything yeah so right now you know they just, my client just filed bankruptcy last week. Really where we're at is we, we are basically in the process of selling all of our hard assets. So our trucks and our real estate to a kind of like a competitor, more or less. They've hired all of our employees. So we've got all of them jobs and I'm in a bit of like a purgatory right now, trying to help the bank recover the rest of like the receivables. And so, you know, there's, we're still owed a large amount. There's most likely that we will get some of that back. And so I am, you know, basically getting everything ready together to file personal bankruptcy um, is where I'm kind of at in this situation and just trying to work with the bank to get as much, you know, saved as possible. Because once I file bankruptcy, I can't talk to the bank any longer. Um, and so- Is there a number that there, this goes back to the personal guarantee, right? Yeah. Is there a number- that they're looking for to recoup back before it goes into bankruptcy? I don't think there's a number. Um, we did have to get, you know, approval process to sell these assets. Um, you know, so they had to do evaluation on the trucks. We have evaluation on the real estate. So they do, and this is like a friendly situation, I would say. So I'm still technically operating and working together with the bank to sell these assets together. If I filed bankruptcy, then basically they have to do everything in conjunction with the trustee to then liquidate these assets. But right now we're getting approval processes to liquidate these assets um, in conjunction with the bank rather than kind of like burning the bridge, I guess. Uh, is it like going back to the offer and compromise is like, yes. you'd want to do what I'm doing to liquidate the assets in conjunction with the bank so that they can check that box that says he worked with us to get maximum value and we're now offering this compromise. And then that compromise would allow you to avoid personal bankruptcy. Okay. Essentially is what would happen uh, on the so, back end of it. 
So at what point do they start coming after what, the, what you firstly guarantee, like your, your property? At what point did, did they do that in bankruptcy or do they do that prior? They would do it in bankruptcy or, or afterwards. So, I mean, for them to start coming after stuff on the personal side of it, you have to go to a judge and you have to get an order. And then that order is then allowing them to then go after you and they can either do that themselves or sell it to a, you know, a debt collection agency. And so, but it does have to be a, a, an order for them to start coming after, you know, your personal, um, assets on there. I know this, this, thank you Hunter, for being so transparent on this, you know, hats off to you for sharing your story on Twitter and Facebook and this podcast, um, because I think this is something real that we all need to hear. We see yeah, it a million absolutely. times in our community. I know you're having in the community. I'm having in the community. The number one, one of the number one questions I are, are stating is, I don't want to sign it. I don't want to do all that. And so I think this leads into what that entails, right? Yeah. In the writ. So you have a smile on your face through this entire podcast, <laughs> and which is awesome. I know you personally. For those who don't know you, tell me a little bit about your resiliency has has kicked in. I can see it in your eyes. You have a lot of faith, whether it's spiritually and religion or Jesus. Talk to us about what's keeping you going right now. Yeah, you know i I didn't go into this process uh, dumbly. I think you, you know I like there. I I always told my wife that you know if this goes south. I'll have to go get a job. And, you know, I think that also comes with a little bit of just confidence that I could go get a job, but also with a lot of preparation that if I needed to go get a job after all of this, like the networking, my connections, successes in the past, you know, just always over, um, like over delivering is what I've always tried to do that it put me in a situation where I could confidently say yes to a, a PG. Um, you know, I think on the just more like realistic side of this expectation, you know, I'm 28. We don't have a lot of hard assets. I'm not putting a ton of things at risk. Um, put a lot more at risk, I think, than I initially planned on, you know, just like with agency success and then having to kind of cover in other areas. Um but I, I, you know, I, I did go into this eyes wide open of knowing like what the risks are on the back end. Um, but you know, I, I would say as things have progressed over time, one, I have an incredible spouse, um, who, you know, allows me and us to take these risks and even, you know, risk like moving to Puerto Rico and, you know, some of these other things, you know, having somebody that is there for you is a really real situation. And, not everybody signs up for, you know, that, that life either. Um, you know, secondly, I think it's the, the kids of like, the kids just don't have time for bankruptcy. I like, like, and you know, I, at the end of the day, I love kids too. And so, you know, I, there's just definitely a desire to wake up and go surf with them and hang out with them and, you know, enjoy life. Like they, they just, they don't have time for it. I mean, the oldest right. one's four and a half, you know, he, we've been very transparent with him and, you know, when I was gone in June and everything, but 
they just they're, they're kids. So it's like I'm not I'm also not going to rob them of like their time just because we're in this situation. And then I think sure. you know, lastly, as you've alluded to, is like faith does play a very very important role in our lives um, and how we approach things and you know, really how we show up every single day as well. And I, and I did a lot of that work back in college and just like really wrestling with a lot of those, um, those, you know, the difficult things of faith. And, you know, my, my biggest thing is just like be consistent, you know, with, with my views and my the way I act and the way I show up. And, you know, I think if there's one thing I'm consistent is it's that, right. It's, it's like, it's my worldview and how I'm going to show up to whatever the situation is doesn't really change on, on, on a certain level. Whether it's me going through bankruptcy, I will have a smile on my face. Me going through you know difficult situations in the business, I'm usually going to have a smile on my face. And you know that that joy doesn't get taken away from like worldly things in uh, in, in a lot of situations. And so you know I think that really is what the guiding, you know, factor is. And, you know, I think even as part of that faith, you know, journey, it's like having those people around you that, you know, you can just ask at any single time to like hop on a phone call and, and, you know, when things get really hard, I think natural tendency is to like, like shrink into a shell. Whereas like, usually when things get really hard, I am going to reach out. Like, it, you know, you, you've kind of got to train that like muscle. It's like, if something's going wrong, like reach out, you know, it, yeah. and usually if you do that enough times, you realize that like you're, you're one, not going through this alone and two, that you have a support system that you've, you know, built up and there are people that will, you know, um, that you can lean on. Um, and yeah, that post was crazy because there's a lot worse situations, you know, of people going through things of, uh, lawsuits and private equity, you know suing them for their lives and people stealing like tax payments, but the IRS still making them like, you know, pay stuff. It's just like, you know, I am in this situation. I am because I made these decisions. I take the responsibility. And, you know, I also know that I've, what I've done is, is all part of this plan, you know, for the future and, and the learnings that I'll take from this are, are things that I will, you know, hold on to the next 40 years of my career, um, being, being in this situation. Yeah. Great answer. And if there's a, there's a model to em, em, emulate, I would say it, you Hunter, in terms of going in through something that's very hard in life and the way you're handling it. Um, I think a lot of people are going to learn from you on how to handle adverse situations. And so, uh, Keep doing what you're doing on that front. Start in terms of being transparent. Um, so, out of all this, we'll wrap up with a couple more questions. Um, you know, through all this, what's what's been your proudest moment um, in, in the way you're handling it? Just anything in general uh, of entrepreneurship, your acquisition. I think my proudest moment is just continuing to execute. You know, like. There was a vision. There still is a vision. You know, that vision is going to change a little bit, but really, you know, executing towards that vision is what a lot of the decisions I made were and like just continuing to execute 
it, you know, I probably should have slowed down. I probably should have, you know, taken some of the lessons before diving into the next thing. But, you know, I think when you have in business, when you have a vision that drives, you know, to certain outcomes, you know, it's one of the more powerful things that kind of keeps you, you know, going. And I think kind of executing towards that original vision, you know, now it's kind of going back and understanding, you know, where were maybe the flaws of that vision and maybe where that vision, you know, can be adjusted or, you know, the thesis that, that I was working under, but, you know, there were a lot of things that I executed right on, you know, to achieve that vision. There were a lot of things I did wrong, but, you know, I think that's the biggest thing as part of an entrepreneur. It's just like, you just continue executing on a day by day basis. Um, and, you know, doing that in the rules and the constraints that you build for yourself, whether that's, you know, how you treat people, you know, where you live, whether, you know, the game that you build for yourself and entrepreneur, you know, in entrepreneurship is, 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 is really important as well. Um, and, you know, I played within the game. I played within my rules, um, you know, and not everybody's going to have those rules, but I played within my rules and I executed, you know, within those rules as well. And I would say that's probably, you know, the proudest moment. And those rules are be a good husband, be a good father, uh, you know, treat people in a way, uh, that, you know, you want to be treated and, you know, that business at its core is, is a people business. Um, you know, and that was really the, 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 the driving force behind all of this was to make an impact. And I would have made a lot more money not doing all of this, <laughs> right? right? Like right. if I, you know, like I, at the end of the day, I probably sacrificed a good, like 500 K, you know, going after this yeah. vision, you know, as a 28 year old. And, um, you know, I now have three kids and I can't do that anymore. Like, right. Like life has changed a little bit and I probably will take that, uh, you know, a different route. And, but I think I'm proud of executing, you know, and just relentlessly going after that vision, even to the point of it being probably naive in a, in a lot of situations, um, you know, uh, about it. So hundred percent love it. I love that answer, man. Okay. So, uh, this is the question I always kind of end the, the conversation with um, it's around sales. And it, sometimes it's kind of personally for my benefit because at the end of the day, we're all in sales, right? Yeah. You had to put your sales hat on when you found the business and you convinced that seller to choose you. Um, so in your next chapter of life, you're going to put on the sales hat. And let's say you had retool. You had to choose from. You were able to cold call, email, or do in-person networking, call it event, conferences, things of that nature. You only get one. You only get to choose one. Where would you spend your time and what method would you use to go find that next big W-2 or that next big uh, acquisition? Yeah. Uh, It's got to be in-person, 100%. Uh, a lot has to do with my personality, but I, I post about it on Twitter too. It's just like, you got to get on the plane. Like it, there's just, I mean, even when you and I first met that first time, it was like, I flew halfway across, you know, from Puerto Rico to LA to like for a potential of, it was a rather large deal that we were kind of going after, but you just got to get on the plane if it's like, if it matters that much to you. And, um, 
even in the next adventure, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to do more in-person things um, here in Puerto Rico. And so I definitely am that uh, in-person guy. You just, there's just like, you know, it's like cold calling, you get the voice, uh, video conferencing, Zoom calls, you know, you get the voice and you can see the smiles, but like, I don't know, the physical interaction from handshakes to hugs to, you know, whatever, whatever fits your fancy is like, yeah. It is, I, I just don't think you can, uh, substitute the, that human experience um, yes. with someone else, especially if you add like food, you know, and having dinner, uh, you know, with someone else, there's just so much that comes from, from those moments with, that we have with the other people. So I'm i I'm a hundred percent in person guy. Love it. Well, just once I post all of these on, on the, uh, the web all the podcasts, you'll find that a hundred percent of the guests so far have chosen an answer. And Doesn't might I add me. that all of them <laughs> have had success in their own right. And so yeah. love it. Where can people reach out to you? Assuming that's okay. Given, given yeah. the content of our conversation. What's no, the best? I'm, uh, I'm definitely an open book. You can find me on Twitter at Hunter C Durham. Um, so they're definitely welcome to find me on Twitter and connect with you there. I would love to meet some people from this. Hunter, this has been awesome. And, um, I know you're going through some times, but what you shared to this is going to be so impactful to the, the community and, and shoot by the, by the reach of your, your Twitter already I think outside of our community, just the world in general. Um, I have absolute faith in you that you're going to, you're going to get out of this and, um, we're going to read your name in the paper, you know, two, three and five years from now. And this is just going to be a blur, man, and a blip. Um, yeah. So keep going and uh, let's stay in touch, man. Awesome. I appreciate you having me, Jared. Take care. Good luck with the, the podcast. All right. Thanks, brother. For a more unique experience, we also record these conversations in video format, which can be found on our website by visiting Arc businessexits.com forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for tuning in.